Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres Rodriguez, and I'm here to help you be poderosa with your dinero. I'm an engineer, a blogger, and an entrepreneur that built a $50,000 side hustle, and I'm obsessed with all things personal finance. On this show, we're going to talk about how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and how to make it grow. Are you ready? Vámonos. Hola, mi gente. Welcome back to another episode of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. This is your host, Janice. And today's episode is very appropriately scheduled because if you're listening to this in real time, this is Independence Day weekend or the 4th of July weekend in the United States. Now, if you are like me, you're kind of feeling like, fuck these United States because they're a hot ass mess and you're completely justified in feeling that way. Celebrating America in 2020 just feels off no matter how much quote-unquote pride you have in this country. We don't look much like a city on the hill in relation to the broader world. We have a crazy-ass president who doesn't give a shit that there's a pandemic and technically doesn't give a shit about anything else. And we're angry. People are out in the streets. We demand more from our governments. We demand more from ourselves. And... So I thought that this episode would be super timely because we are in an election year and I wanted to talk to someone who could break down why we should care about elections and voting and how it affects your dinero. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when you do or do not vote, you're giving a lot of people in power 
the ability to dictate where your tax dollars go and what ends up showing up in your community. So I hope that this episode gets you inspired. If you're not already registered to vote, get your shit together because this year is more important than ever. I cannot stress that enough. And to guide us through the reasons why we should care about voting and how voting affects your dinero, we're going to be talking to Amanda Miguel of Pinche Millennial. Amanda Miguel is an advocacy and public policy professional by day and status quo disruptor by night. She created Pinche Millennial Studios to spur her fellow millennials to see policy in their everyday lives and view civic engagement as the norm. Now the largest U.S. age demographic, there are more than 82 million millennials in this country and they've surpassed the boomer generation, which in the past has been standard for policy creations. With the belief that participation is powerful, Pincha Millennial produces digital content that encourages civic engagement and public discourse. All right, Amanda, thank you so much for being here, first off. Thank you. I am so excited to talk to you. Um, like I was talking to you before we got on the recording, I think your content is brilliant. The name of your brand, Pinche Millennial, I mean, like when I saw that, I was like, what the hell is this? This is so cool. I need to talk to her. Um, because it's just so witty and the content that you put out is like top notch. So kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't already know you, I'd love for you to start off with an introduction of who you are and why you actually started Pinche Millennial. Absolutely. Yes. So hola friends. Hola, yo quiero dinero podcast listeners. Uh, <laughs> is Amanda Miguel. I am the founder of Pinche Millennial, a digital advocacy platform that operates on the premise that participation is powerful. And the name Pinche Millennial really is uh, just a witty way of going around and saying, hey, millennials are the largest U.S. age demographic and we are more diverse, we're more educated than the previous majority. So this is, you know, this is the opportunity really to be engaged and reimagine kind of our world and taking ownership of that power. So Pinch uh, Millennial uh, produces digital content that breaks down civic engagement and highlights ways to get involved. Awesome. So I'm curious, where did the inspiration for like you becoming involved in this space come from? So were you from a politically active family? Like where where is that inspiration come from? Um, you know what? I actually have a very unique career path that kind of mm -hmm. led to this point. Um, you know. Just background-wise, I am a first-generation millennial, the first to have an advanced degree in my family. My parents immigrated from Mexico. Um, but my passion honestly stems from my upbringing. Um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago in the 90s. And it is, and if you don't know what it looked like back then, it's kind of like this huge tension um, and very stark imagery of disinvestment in black and brown communities. So I, you know, I realized this inequality very young, mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't have that language to really describe the systemic disinvestment until, until college. And so it, this, after college, I kind of was left with, you know, wanting to change the world. Like, I feel like, you know, so many folks have like this innate passion of, you know, this is it right. So we got to make it 
better. Um, and so I actually, my background in college, I, I'm an information technology management major, but I also did Latino studies. Um, I was, it was a this weird connection of like joining, you know, my trajectory should have been uh, an IT job in a major, you know, Fortune 500 company. And I interviewed for those jobs, but the things that really spoke to me were actually a, a calling to do Teach for America. I wanted to become a teacher. And I started off my career as a middle school teacher in Phoenix, Arizona, which, you know, I thought living in Chicago, I knew what it looked like to be surrounded by Latinos. But in Phoenix, it was a, a whole different context. And so just seeing that though we have very different political, you know, um, even closeness to to the border, et cetera, like these were just contextually so um, different. Um, and but yet I still saw the same inequality years after I'd already gone through my experience um, in you know public schools. So uh, this kind of led me into community organizing. I was an organizer in South LA. Um, by that point, I really want. I was really interested in policy, so I worked in California State Capitol uh, for an assemblywoman who was a badass Latina. Um, and you know, for me, it still inspired this policy and advocacy component. So I came back to LA and um, and you know became a policy analyst for a transportation advocacy organization led by women. Um, and then now I am a professional advocate uh, by day for a national nonprofit. So I, I would say ultimately I've just been on this journey for me personally to kind of identify how I wanted to uplift the skills and passion that I have for wanting to better our communities um, and how I uniquely fit in that picture. And I will say understanding now this year, this huge relationship we have with um, social media and other digital platforms, it came, it became something, a new language that I needed to learn uh, in order to reach the folks that I, I wanted to mobilize. And so um, that that's honestly why I became, I, I wanted to learn this. I created, I started producing videos, um, short breakdowns, because I, I, that was the way we are interpreting crucial information, uh, news. And I knew that that was a space that I had to learn quickly. Um, but, you know, thankfully have those tools with my partner um, and just the encouragement to, to share this with others. And I think that's, that's where I find myself today. <laughs> that's awesome. And I think it's, um, it's so important that you're tying in social media, because I think we have seen multiple examples of the power of social media to mobilize and activate people on a scale that has never been seen before. And I think we're seeing that right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, mm -hmm. um, the social media aspect has given people from all over the world access to what's going on. And as a result, I think the movement has grown even bigger than ever, which is amazing. Absolutely. So I, um, I thank you for, you know, taking that role of using the platform to advocate and to inform because, you know, we do have so many different ways of consuming media, but you create media that is very engaging and super like timely and just super relevant, especially for millennials. And um, so I know millennials have basically become the largest U.S. age demographic, right? So is that part of the reason why you're targeting 
us? Are, are we just that much more important at this point when it comes to politics? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, we we have the opportunity. I always say this. I'm like, millennials have the potential to be a force. Um, and I always kind of stress that because there is the potential to not be a force uh, if we aren't engaged. And I think, you know, operating on that premise, that idea that, you know, if we do nothing, it will be the same. So, um, you know, if folks are really passionate about, you know, what, you know, what folks are calling like social media advocacy, right? Posting, uh, reposting or resharing. And though those pieces are absolutely necessary to get the type of awareness that we have for critical moments in our history today, there, there's more to it than that than just that. So awareness needs to become action. And so I think with providing folks the, you know, with the letters, with the phone numbers, the the follow-ups, right? The actionable items uh, that folks can take is is also as necessary. So, and and there's so many ways to be engaged. Um, I know we're gonna have some discussion of you know how I can vote with my with my purse strings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is so many aspects to civic engagement um, that you know is 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 all necessary. And you know one of the crucial components in um, you know this large conversation is like voting is the bare minimum, like you know. Right. Those are just, if you are able to, if you can, you know, that is the bare minimum. Um, And so I envision something more than just that. Um, And I think it's just, it's just honestly recognizing people are making decisions on your behalf every single day, Mm -hmm. uh, every moment, uh, affecting your purse strings, affecting your way of life, affect every aspect of your life. And so um, I will say in my videos, I'm not super heavy handed. I mean, very, I'm being very frank on this podcast. Um, personally, you know, this is the driving force of all the work that I do. Um, and I, I honestly making it a way that's kind of engaging and kind of like that first step um, has always been, I would say, not a, somewhat of a struggle for me, but, um, you know, I had to come to the light too. So, you know, there's all these steps that we can be taking. So, um I think this this is just part one, awareness, and then how do I move folks from awareness to action? Awesome. All right. So like you mentioned, this episode title is Why Voting Matters for You and Your Dinero. So we're going to get all into that. And the first question that I have for you is, how does a person's spending habits influence what the American economy does? You know what? Um, it's it's wild because there are so many factors. Um, I, you know background wise, I I was a business major in college. And, you know, one of the key tenets to businesses succeeding or failing is addressing a niche, right? This opportunity that you've identified um, that there needs to be a match of demand to keep your business, you know, afloat or whatnot. So, you know, you got your foresight, you got your your packaging, the marketing of whatever service or product you want to provide. Um, because because that's what recognize that's what folks recognize as you know successful like that looks good this person is super passionate if you ask any kind of like um, lender you know if someone's trying to take on a business loan you know they need to be convinced that you are providing something that you're convinced is going to be successful so you know that that's one aspect that's like what you personally can do right when you are um, creating or starting your own business. 
And then there's the things that are the external factors, the the things that are kind of not in your uh, control. And I think it's really timely now, given COVID, um, how it's just changed our economy. And, you know, we are we're going again, talking to the importance of digital, the, the digital space, folks that are able to work from home today are doing so because they have access um, to this, uh, to be, to be online, to be able to do any of their responsibilities through the, you know, the safety of their home. And, and then there are entire industries like retail and services, uh, like the restaurant industry that, you know, cannot, which is this huge difference because for the past, I would say the past 12 years from the great recession, we were just getting over that hump with all these new jobs and all these jobs were hospitality and retail. And so for us to see it today through new eyes of, you know, you know, things are getting closer to being in control, but there's always a possibility that we'll be in the same stay at home when there's another spike. So how is our economy responding? How are, you know, businesses, um, you know, folks who create jobs, uh, you know, how are they going to accommodate, again, their workers um, if that were to be the case again? So so the question of, you know, one's personal spending habits, uh, one's personal decisions is one area, but then there's the whole other, you know, out, you know, external forces that affect all of the, how, how folks succeed. Um, and, and I will say, you know, in that space, like not to be like, I'm completely, you know, um, rendered useless, you know, no, there are tons of way that you still can support folks, um, during this time. A lot of, you know, a lot of folks use their, um, what's it called? Their stimulus check, right? They're using it exclusively to support, uh, one organizations that are providing frontline, um, help, or they are exclusively, you know, purchasing, uh, ordering from from local restaurants, supporting local businesses, folks online. You know, there's th- those are also key strategies to supporting this like local economy or, or, or whoever you want to support. Um, and that means the world, especially at this time. Absolutely, yeah. Small business has been hit, and you know, I I'm so. Uh, disheartened by seeing how unevenly the impact from COVID has been affecting black and brown communities, because we do tend to have those service level essential worker jobs. Right. And so we're seeing those disparities that people talk about all the time, like on a huge level that I don't think people realized. Oh, completely. We, you know, here in LA, we have, you know, a specific economy, right. We also have the entertainment industry here. And though they're probably, I think, on the list, maybe the second most impacted, almost 29% job loss, our number one still, like the rest of the country, is accommodation and food services. Almost 40% of those jobs were lost in the last two months. And so the way, you know, it's it's siphoned out by, uh, you know, neighborhood and who lives in those neighborhoods, is is a totally along um black and brown you know experiencing the most job loss so it's again we're you know i think this is the point where we're figuring out what kind of economy will support um 
our like all of our all of our communities that uh, have been impacted the most. And when they say that, you know, we understandably know that those are going to be the black and brown jobs that we've lost and how we're going to support those communities. Um, because, you know, it, there, there's, um, this is getting a little heady, but <laughs> there, you know, there's an understanding that there is a just growth economy model where, which I, I compare to uh, for folks who are listeners that are teachers, when you teach to the students who um, have the most needs, have the most, um, you know, they're English language learners. If you're teaching to uh, those that have um, most a- issues with access to the 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 lesson that you're bringing, you're actually enriching it for all the folks in the room. You're actually making it better for everyone to kind of learn. And mm-hmm. so, the just growth economy model is that if you are creating an economy that supports those that are most uh, vulnerable to lose their jobs, you're actually making an economy that's stronger for everyone else. Cause we all, you know, you can't have one without the other, you know, like we all, if one of us is is struggling, like all of us is going to struggle. Like this is apparent in, in our economy. So, um, and, and it exists in other areas of learning as well as just general <laughs> understandings yeah. of how we all work together. Yeah. That makes so much sense. It is in our best interest as a society to provide a system that enables like a level of security for everybody, right? Because, yeah. All right. So I want to get into, well, it, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that this year is an election year. It's a big mm-hmm. one. And so I want to talk about why voting or not voting affects what's happening with your money, both on a macro and a micro level. Absolutely. Um Yes, as you mentioned, <laughs> this is a an election year, and um, what it actually also impacts is it kind of decides what the next four years will look like um, regarding your economy as well, because that leadership is important on making those types of decisions. And so, you know, at a macro level, you know, national, federal, global, um, and foreign policy, you know, how we operate with other countries um, is is crucial to what any job sector or any opportunities, future opportunities, I should say, um, will look like. And so if, um, you know, the leader of this country wants to, in you know, invest in our local economy or, you know, cl- close off specific relationships with different countries, like those all will have ramifications. And so, I I always, you know, th- though that is one thing, there is so many sublevels to that macro level that are even more important. And um and this is where I really love. <laughs> this is what I actually really love. I actually love doing the work at the micro level. So this is um state is still kind of large, but still super necessary. Um, but the rest of your voting ballot, it is gonna have the presidential seat, but it's also gonna have your your representation for the house for the senate for your state either your assembly person or your representative uh state senators it's going to have on their judges it's going to have your county representation if you have a board of supervisor or a uh, county elected um and then your city you know your city could be uh experiencing a local election as well here in uh, Los Angeles we switched off we switch off with our um odds odd seats with our even seats. So this year, you know, 
we'll be seeing the even seats go up for re-election. And those, this is where your money is be talking. And this is what you feel every single day because the local measures, the local electeds decide a lot of what goes into your funding for your local parks, for your streets and roads, for your schools. And this, these are things that you can tangibly see in your everyday life. So at the micro level, the offices closest to you or the folks that have the impact for your everyday to day life literally live in your community. And I think that is where there's so much potential, especially for millennials, uh, to get involved at the local level because our sales taxes, and again, I'm getting a little wonky and it's pretty regional what I'm talking about, but LA County, we have four sales taxes. So two cents of every dollar goes to our transportation system, which is wild because lots of other regions, you know, do this through their property taxes. So here's the main difference with that. When folks are doing it through property taxes, the burden, quote unquote, is going on homeowners or property owners. While in this region, we have this history of doing sales taxes. So sales taxes does not matter how much, does not care who, how much money you make, does not care if you own property. They're going to tax you on everything you buy, like at the retail level, any new shoes that you buy. You pay this if I made $10,000 a year or if I'm making $200,000 a year. So sales tax in a lot of ways are known as regressive taxes. They are equal amongst everyone despite income level. And that's an important conversation to have because if I'm only making $30,000 and I don't benefit from uh, a transportation system that is great for me, you know, I only get like one bus that comes every 30 minutes or an hour, um, you know, what am I paying for and why is it having such a huge um, impact on my specific purse? So, that was kind of a big workaround, but there it's at the micro level. Um, this is something that's going to affect you more closely because it is affecting things like state taxes or your sales taxes. And it all goes back down to taxes, but this is how we pay. This is how we pay for the good that for these goods and services that everyone is, is privy to. So, and, and I'll add one more example. (laughs) Um, you know, the roads that we, we pay with our taxes get fixed, right? Everyone gets to use them, including the very businesses that supply jobs for folks to get to and from work. Um, so the conversation, you know, I'm not sure if a lot of folks, you know, follow that conversation of, of you know, how are we taxing the wealthy? Um, you know, there's this conversation on how many exemptions, how many how many good things has this company brought into our local economy and how much are we as the taxpayers subsidizing or paying for them to be here? And that question of that balance is always a discussion that can be had both at the macro and at the micro level um, because we're all shared. They're all shared goods. They're all shared roads. Like, you know, we all should have that discussion. Well, and you know, one other thing that local governments decide is police funding. So if that's something that's important to you, you should definitely be voting in this election. Oh, yes. Let's touch on that because Mm -hmm. it's such a big uh, conversation. Um, So, you know, I actually will be doing a video on this uh, this week. So I'm excited that you brought this up. Um, 
you know, the one of the big asks with um, the Black Lives Matter movement is a move to defund police. And if you really want to look at numbers, I think this is where you have a stark image of where a majority of local municipalities actually use their dollars. So, you know, in our county, in Los Angeles County, I live in Los Angeles, so I obviously have this context. Um, in our county, we have more than 89 cities, including unincorporated LA, LA County. And a number of those cities are so small, like they're like probably less than um, like 80,000 people. That's a small city um, here in our region. You know, a number of cities can afford to to have their own police uh, force. And so they'll use um, the county's provider, which is the sheriff's department. So the sheriff's department is paid for by uh, all L.A. County um residents. And then there are others, other cities that are large enough to have their own police force, like the city of LA, the largest city in LA County. We're almost like three and a half, almost 4 million people um, just in our city limits. And our our city budget is extremely, um, I would say, is extremely subsidized by um, all, all that we go, that goes towards police and fire. Um, and so California in general is like a wildfire like uh, hub. And so it's necessary to have, you know, definitely emergency powers with uh, with our fire uh, department. But regarding our police here in the city of L.A., they make up almost 54 percent of our budget. Um, wow. So if you were to look at it, literally, there's like a bar graph that was like on city documents. Um, so just imagine we have a approximately a $10 billion city budget. Uh, some of that is flexible dollars, so which is called our unrestricted funding. And then some of them is restricted funding. So like we as taxpayers, like we're investing in parks. This goes just to parks. Like those, they're specific accounts that just pay for specific things. So when we look at our unrestricted funding, things that we as a community have say, in uh, prioritization, so how we invest in those things, um, is called our unrestricted funding. And in that pot, if you were to look at the graph that the local Black Lives Matter um, and the people's budget uh, are using in their campaign, they 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 adequately um, portray that fifty four percent of our budget is going to police, and it has been growing for the last. Um, I don't know how far back, but at least since the, for the last four to six years, it's been growing gradually 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 so folks aren't really catching just the what that gradual increases looks like in millions of dollars um and if you were to compare it for like parks or park benches like if 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 lighting you know a park to make it safer more you know engaging was probably like less than a half a million dollars like it's just it's just very stark how we could be investing our dollars. I'm sorry, I went on a little rant. <laughs> That's an insane number, first off, that they're spending on police. And, oh my God, I mean, LAPD just has such an awful history when it comes to oppression and blatant racism and just systemic policies that have been so detrimental to the black and brown communities. So the fact that there's people willing to spend that much money on that is just mind boggling to me. Yes. <laughs> All right. So um, I want to touch on this topic that I feel like it's a word that a lot of people are familiar with is the lobbyists. Mm. What are they? 
and how do they influence policies that affect your money? Absolutely. Like, and this is where I, you know, I get so pumped, right? Because this is for me, something I had to learn uh, and experience and be like, what? These people are paid like tons of money to come and lobby you, to come and talk to you every opportunity that they get. So lobbyists are paid individuals or paid uh, firms that will represent um, large corporations, unions, any any body that is has a self-interest. And who has self-interest? Everyone. <laughs> Everyone has a self-interest. Um, and you know, like I said, this also includes, you know, large unions of, you know, um, organized workers, like the nurses unions, the teachers unions, you know, they also have their lobbyists. Um, so they, 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 I will, they represent large, powerful bodies or large, powerful individuals. Um, because those relationships that lobbyists have with policymakers is, is their, you know, their intellectual, um, property like that that relationship that they have built over the years these are people that just live at the state capitol um that's what makes them so much more influential so and that's how you get top dollar if you are a lobbyist so these are folks that are basically paid uh to ensure that their client's self-interest is represented in any policy that gets passed um and what that could look like is you know for example at the at the state level, you know, are these lobbyists comb through any um, potential policy, any which is called which are called bills. <laughs> if we remember that one, you know, show growing up, like you know the the process of a bill, yes, um, making it its way up to Capitol Hill. You know, <laughs> um, they their their job is to comb through those proposed bills and decide if this is going to have an impact on my client. Um, so they do their due diligence, they review legislation, they notice, oh, this has an impact on nurses for some reason. You know, it could have an impact on um, the way that they are uh, for the PPE, their uh, protective um, equipment. Equipment, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like, oh, this this specific, you know, piece of legislation says, oh, they have to go through one more step of of verification that this is a strong contractor to provide that prote- protective equipment. It's a small impact, but it's a discussion point because one, highlighting, hey, we can't put any more hurdles for our nurses, uh, you know, for, for them to get their protective equipment. Let's discuss why you've included this one sentence. And then that policymaker can be like, oh, this was some language from an actual contractor because it made it easier for them uh, to be to be bumped up the list because they provide that service. Like there are so many implications with just like one, even one word in a legislation could have a huge impact. That is what lobbyists will do. And so the end goal, you know, the outcome for their clients and what they actually do is that they are ensuring if this is going to have an impact on my client, it's got to be a beneficial one. It can't be one that's going to, uh, be costly to my client or um, deter them from doing that work. So mm. they are influencing policy at every level. Um, and a bigger one, something that's probably more relatable is exemptions for taxes. 
So, you know, federal contracts, tax credits uh, for, you know, a certain industry supplying X number of jobs. Yes, that's that's wonderful. But then there's still needs to be a conversation of, well, how are you going to be giving? Yes, you're giving a job, but how are how else are you embedding yourself in that community to to not make it, you know, where I just take, 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 and, you know, there's nothing to give back. That's, that's that crucial relationship we have. So your wallet is affected by those dollars, whether they pay them or we pay them. Mm. So I do have another question for you because this is another buzzword that a lot of people may not understand what it actually is. What is a political action committee and what do they do? Yeah. So a political action committee is a organized body that is main role is to be a funder. So once a committee is started, essentially they, um, there are special rules that they adhere to. Essentially they can um, support any candidate that they want um, with an unlimited amount of money. Um, and I will say there are different types of political action committees, different types of PACs. Um, different states have certain caps that um, PACs can make. Uh, so here in California, we actually have um, a limit to how much mo- how much money a PAC can give to a specific candidate at, this, at a specific level of office. Uh, because the problem there, right? If there is this organization or a committee, more a committee that has like unlimited, unlimited spending power, then there's like, well, who is paying that money? Who is trying to be an influence on this election? Mm-hmm. And so that's where like this dark money questions come up, and you know, you know, where candidates will probably say, "I have no pack. I don't take any pack money." Um, because they want to be very transparent, right? You, if you are someone that is running for public office, you, you are a civil servant. Your job is supposed to be for the people that you represent, right? That's the idea, which I feel like sometimes we've gotten so far from. Um, but w- when you introduce this idea of PACs, um, then it becomes less transparent of who is supporting you and who could potentially be influencing uh, your de- your decisions as a policymaker, someone who makes a choice to vote yes or no on a specific piece of legislation. So, you know, and, and it's funny because, you know, I actually did a, a short video on um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who actually started her own PAC as well to support progressive candidates. Um, and I think it was, you know, out of the necessity because there is so much money uh, in PACs and the rules as of right now uh, can definitely sway in one way over another on, uh, you know, how that can be done. And, and I, I wanted to talk about this about, you know, here in our country, we don't have uh, publicly funded campaigns. So in other areas around the world, you know, this democracy, you know, that they invest in, they also recognize as, you know, as community members, hey, we we should all be uplifting and be the source of how these campaigns are paid for. Because when it's not, which is what we have here in our country, when it's privately funded campaigns, this is when 
dollars absolutely matter on who wins. Um, for just like a, just one example, you know, if you, you know, had an election coming up in your neighborhood and one candidate was successfully sending you social media sponsored ads, you know, they were sending you mailers through your mailbox, um, ha- were sending you, uh, what's it called? Goodies. I've gotten actually, um, a, a hand warmer. So when I, so I don't burn myself with pulling out, uh, pods from, you know, the, the oven or whatever, uh, with that candidate's name, like that swag, those signs you see as you're driving around your neighborhood, you're like, huh, you, you, that candidate has built one name recognition to this, like, oh, this person has like nice stuff. They must be, you know, um, be very vastly supported, you know, that, that this makes them a viable candidate. They, they, in your mind as a voter have now been influenced by that campaign's ability to raise dollars. Um, and so that's sometimes if you were to look at it, well, here, I'm a regular person, you know, I'm a mom and I wanted to, you know, run for my local city council because, you know, my neighborhood, I want to make it cleaner and safer for, for families, you know, that person may not have the type of access that someone else has, um, you know, being a, an elected official, like a, a professional elected official, uh, what they call them. And so, you know, th- they have to leverage grassroots dollars. They have to leverage their their um, their neighbors, the people they know in their networks. Um, and if they can't match, if they only have like a small percentage of what the other candidate can raise, they're likely not going to get uh, that name recognition or, you know, even all the well and good that they want to do. If they don't have money, they aren't viable. Um, and in um, in campaigns, you know, I've, I've worked on a number of campaigns as well. Um, if you don't hit a specific dollar amount for the type of race you go in, so whether it's city council, a county seat, a state seat, or a congressional seat, something to go for the house, each one has a price tag wow. to, to demonstrate, oh, this is that someone can look at you and be like, you're running for this office. You need to raise $500 million or you need to raise a solid, you know, which is insane. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, 
Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. Um, or, you know, or you, you live in a small city. Okay, you only need to raise 25, you know, 25,000 or 2,500. It's just, it's. It is a it is a formula and it is used for every campaign. That is mind boggling. And I think that's why we see time and time again that the people who represent us don't actually have anything in common with the people that they represent because they have to be millionaires to even run yeah. for these these offices. And, you know, it just it creates this system of uh, in you know, inequity and it's just so frustrating. So like if you're someone who really hates this idea about the influence of money on politics, like what can you do as an individual? Um, I will, I will say I am. So I was a community organizer. So there, there's these tenants, right? There's this idea of uh, who, where is, where, how is power acquired? And there's three ways that power is acquired. And one is through uh, money, straight up money. Money is power in this country, um, in this economy, I want to say in this world. <laughs> the second one is positional power. So an elected office is power. And now we've just made clear there is a relationship between money and an elected office. Um, and then there's this third power, which is what folks are really understanding today, and that is people power. So if you are someone, to your question, if you are someone that does not want money in politics or in our our civic you know offices then we need to make people power the biggest power uh, we need to rival that you need which is what you're seeing with this moment in time of mass mobilization of people I, i'm really excited <laughs> for this because the momentum that is necessary to make you know, extreme change or just revolutionary change needs to see, needs to be sustainable. I think there's um, a huge need for uh, folks to understand the history of how we were able to make revolutionary change in this country. Uh, really, was on movements, on people, on um, folks organizing, not just for what I think thus far it's been a little over a week of this this kind of sustained protests. Um, you know, the bus boycott was like, I don't know, like 300 and some days. Oh, so like wow. almost a year, you know, and this question of like, what are you willing to give for what you say is necessary for our, our community? So and I think that's like a like a hard mirror that folks need to look at and be like, what am I willing to give so that people power so that, you know, real change happens? And I, I'm I'm. I think this is the moment that that is possible, um, but I think folks need to get refreshed and just, you know, you know, you know, slap your, you know, game face every <laughs> single day because it's not easy. Power does not just, you know, give power up easily. Um, 
And I will say, if you want to take money out of politics, you you, you got to be strong and you got to be in it. So yeah. um, this is a long term fight. This is not something that's going to get resolved overnight. Absolutely. So I feel like I've seen the rise of something that I guess I'm calling socially conscious spending. So there's a lot of people that really care about using their money in ways that promote causes that they believe in, whether it's supporting small business, whether it's, uh, you know, supporting the environment. So how can consumers actually vote with their wallets? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I love this question because, um, you know, I think I've seen so many um, different like food justice kind of uh, videos like on Netflix and things like that. And, you know, when they presented this idea, right, of voting by basically choosing what products you purchase, you're, you, you with your money are supporting a specific type of model. It's being interpreted by um, the grocery stores. For instance, if you're buying groceries, it's being interpreted by your grocery stores. It's being interpreted by your small businesses, uh, your restaurants. Um, so for one example, you know, when people tell you to buy uh, groceries that are locally grown, um, when you go to a grocery store, you say you see that um, subsection and you're like, wow, why is that so pricey? You know, like when if I'm making a choice with my dollars, right, you know, f- folks on your who are listening, you know, they're, you're going on a budget, um, you're deciding this is what I'd like to invest in. Well, I I think about it that way. How are you investing back into your local economy? So if I'm buying that local produce, I am supporting a local one, a local farmer that lives in my community, near my community, um, that they can be supported, maintain and provide fresh, clean, organic food or whatever, you know, whatever qualifiers that they've been able to provide versus what sometimes is traditionally more accessible, more affordable, uh, you know, food that has been grown, farms, maybe not in this country, but overseas, um, that is being supplied by people who may or may not have the same rights that are outlined in our country. And I will say that our our country doesn't do too great of a job either. Mm -hmm. Um, How we support the families that literally pick our food. Um, you know, California is one of the leading leading exports of all produce uh, across the across the board, and a significant amount of our population is undocumented. Uh, you know how how have we been rewarding the very people who 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 provide the food on our table every single day? Um, you know, and it's just there are just so many levels I would say to the, your question um, because we in or not when we buy what is um, being supplied by a good supplier who pays their um, workers minimum wage or living wage um, is very different with the, the 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 items that are provided. But if that grocery store realizes I'm always running out of my local produce and I o- and I always have a surplus of the stuff that isn't locally grown, I'm I'm spe- I'm now affected by the decision you as a consumer have made because now I have rotting food that I wasn't able to sell in a specific amount of time. I therefore will start cutting down how much as a grocery store I supply with th- from this part, from this supplier and will grow my contract with the local farmer because more people are buying that and the grocery store will also get that cut. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So 
that's just one small example, um, but definitely affects every single hand that has um, touched that uh, good. And you can say that for any other service uh, regarding, you know, your the clothes that you buy. Um, are you buying from like fast, what is it called? Fast fashion mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, here in LA too. You know, you, you can see the factories where the women, you know, work at, again, at sub prime or sub uh, minimum wage and stolen weight. Like those are br- big, broad conversations. And it's actually one that I, again, I'm just an advocate by my design. Absolutely. As a I can hear it. <laughs> It's so fired up. I was like, no, you know, it's just, just you know, with the justice system, we, if we change one lever, you do change the entire thing. You, you do put pressure for it to get a change. And so that, that that's my mindset all the time. Yeah. And I think this is so uh, relevant to especially the personal finance community. There's so much talk about intentionality when it comes to spending, right? Because we are in a consumerist society. We are in a capitalist society that uh, just conditions people to believe that spending money is, is, you know, just part of the American way. Right. Like, and a lot of people don't put the amount of thought into where their money's going. And that's why a lot of people end up, you know, in debt, but there's a, there's an intentionality that also ties into how you're spending that money. So I think this is a, a very relevant conversation when you think about just, you know, Think about where you're going to spend that next dollar. Like, what are the implications of that money? What, who is it supporting? Who is it uh, exploiting? You know, those are all conversations to really have um, because yeah. so much more impact than I think a lot of us realize. Absolutely. And, you know, and I will say this is, again, right, that niche, um, looking at what what is doing really well, a big market has opened for those that do, um, that their proceeds or a percentage of their proceeds at least goes to, um, like a local organization or, um, someone that is be directly impacted by that work. So for instance, I don't know if you're familiar with the brand phenomenal. Um, that's like, you see that phenomenal, phenomenal Latina, uh, you know, a phenomenal black woman, you know, that kind of brand, that's actually a pack um, because they, they are creating a, they create a brand um, that essentially gives back dollars to campaigns of their choosing. So it doesn't always necessarily have to go to a candidate. It can go to um, uh, nonprofits and organizations doing good work. So I actually purchase, and I don't, and I will say, you know, for your Quiero Dinero podcast listeners, I also am very conscious of my dollars. <laughs> I've been spending a lot of good, uh, a lot of credit card debt. Awesome. Um, I'm on a good path. And when I use dollars to buy clothes, for instance, I'm very intentional with that because I was like, man, I can always reuse this stuff. Like, I, I, I'm like, this, so I'm such a cheap state when it comes <laughs> to um, and, and this week I bought um, Black Lives Matter sweaters from Phenomenal because it was going to the proceeds go all towards the Black Founders Lab. And that was uh, an organization started by uh, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives uh, Matter movement. And I was like, you know what? I do think I want something that one shows the world <laughs> that Black Lives Matter. This is something I want to wear, you know, have it on my sleeve or whatnot. Um, but also know that the proceeds, the profits, that's going back 
to supporting that mission. So brands that are like specifically um, have like that partnership with one item, this company phenomenal packs more specifically go, all of it goes back into the community. So I was like, and that's great. And that lifts up that brand up. They get representation on like the media they get, you know, and you could feel good about your purchase. Feel good about your purchase. Exactly. It's like a win-win and people are being more cognizant of, huh, how, how, how is this business using the profits to either, um, invest back into communities, invest back into their workers. I, I'm trying to remember what that brand of like uh, oats and whatnot, Red 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 Hill Farm or something like that, that, you know, all of the company is uh, owned by the workers. Mm. They all share um, ownership. And that's great because then, you know, you know that that is uplifting that economy. It's uplifting those families. Um, they're not getting exploited, you know, like there's, it's, it's changing the conversation of who owns, who has that like purchasing power. Um, and ultimately it, you know, these are great ways of redesigning those, um, those, those systems. Absolutely. Love it. Okay. So what are some important issues that will be affected by the 2020 election? I'm sure there's a ton of them, but if there's like a top five that are in your head, what should we be paying attention to? Oh, this is so good. Um, I mean, I mean, one just highlighting, yes, the 2020 election includes, um, you know, the one office that everyone is going to be voting on is the presidential seats. Um, other specific offices, you know, do a number of different things as well. Federal judges. Um, I, this is one thing I want to also <laughs> share on this podcast, um, you know, the president isn't just the president, you know, they're, they are the executive branch. Um, but one thing that also they influence are the legislative side. So the bill writing, um, as well as the judicial side. So, you know, for the past four years, um, this administration has been very specific of appointing federal judges that agree with, um, that party's uh, beliefs. And so I try to be as nonpartisan as possible, um, you know, when I have these types of conversations, but it just be very clear and aware that, you know, it it extends far beyond just what an executive seat would hold. Um, So the ninth district circuit right now has been greatly changed in the past four years. Um, And this is where, um, these types of judges are the ones that kind of make the decisions regarding one specific issue on the uh, women's rights to choose, uh, you know, how, how, how they, um, yeah, yeah. Women's right to choose, I should say. Um, and it's greatly affected women's rights across the country in tons of different ways because of the federal judges, because it's being done at the state level. Um, these offices have like these relationships. So that was kind of a little bit of a tangent. I'll go back to more the question, right? The important issues. Um, I, I'm guessing more along the line of like the environment, immigration. Is, is that kind of what the... Yeah, I mean, anything that I know, like, for example, DACA is one of those things that's coming up to the Supreme Court like right now. But mm-hmm. what stuff that maybe is six to 12 months down the road that are going to be either decided by like a Supreme court 
Um, you know, I know the Supreme Court itself is a big question because what's going to happen to RGB? I mean, everybody's like so stressed out. And then whoever's president is going to decide who replaces her. God forbid something happens, right? It's, yes. it's so um, stressful. <laughs> it's very, and you know what? And it's, um, I, again, 2020, I think, is just a pivotal year. Um, as 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 we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast, you know, millennials being the largest U.S. demographic, um, you know, the amount of uh, boomers in Congress right now is the majority. Um, they, again, you know, because of COVID, a lot of folks were kind of worried about all of these vast number of elected officials that are much older, um, more susceptible to the virus. Um, our federal judges, as you mentioned, our Supreme Court judges, um, as well. And so how are they doing their day-to-day job and, you know, protecting democracy, <laughs> but also, you know, being cognizant of like the global pandemic. So this, and I will say, I will say that this global pandemic is not going to just wrap itself up neatly by the November election. Right. <laughs> it's going to continue. So I think highlighting one leadership, um, the changing demographics, you know, folks who may or may not be running, like we're just in a changing point in our lives. <laughs> um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be uh, painful. Any kind of change is painful, but it's also, it's going to bring to light a lot of issues that are experienced day to day from folks. So the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, police brutality, how we're funding police, how we're discussing um, just every every single form of oppression <laughs> right. in this regarding wages, regarding our undocumented populations, DACA, um, the, again, again, uh, along partisan lines, but the women's right to choose, um, those, those are fought every single day. They are being discussed. I was like, I don't even live in DC. Um, and I know that the folks that are, live that, that do that work are, you know, of a specific stock of people because it is an overwhelming fight, um, that is just, it's necessary. And so I do my small part in trying to raise awareness in like a fun and engaging way. But, I, you know, I do it that way because inside is I'm, it's not fun for me. It's not, uh, you know, it doesn't bring me a lot of joy when I know there's just so much work to be done. So it definitely important- does feel overwhelming for sure. And it's just, oh God, I feel yes. like so many issues are pulling people in different directions and you don't, you don't feel like anything's going to change, but that's not the case, right? It's just that the change takes time and people don't have patience anymore, (laughs) especially for politics. I know change takes time, but you know, one person and another person, and then you you just keep adding the numbers. You, you are absolutely becoming that pressure and that you're becoming a power. Um, And again, I like try to hone in on the, optimism of of my community organizer side um, and i would i would just say that any important issue I, i'm going to say all of them are going to be important issues mm. all of them yeah. because they have the potential to be changed and i think noticing and paying attention um is going to be just as vital for for any moment so um, I do apologize. I didn't have that like in a nice little three bullet point one. I was like, I, I can't possibly. It's, everything is, is important this year. There is no like buttoned up way to deal with the amount of chaos that we're currently experiencing in this country. So I wouldn't yeah. expect you to be able to, uh, you know, 
parse it down because I mean, there are so many issues. And I think, you know, the way to not get overwhelmed as a voter is to just hone in on one or two that, you know, are just super important to you, whether it's a woman's right to choose, whether it's police brutality, whether it's the way that we're taxed, whether it's money in politics, pick an issue that is going to resonate with you and that's going to activate you and motivate you to get involved because we can't fix everything by ourselves. But as we continue to create like groups of people that are passionate about the same topic, we can change the world. Absolutely. And I love that, Denise. Thank you so much. It's like, um, how do you eat an elephant? (laughs) One (laughs) One little bite at a time. So choose how you want to be part of this and, and, and stay steadfast. And, you know, something is always going to speak to someone in a very different way. Uh, And we, we need all those voices. For sure. Okay, so there's been a lot of talk about voter suppression. Our president is not shy about his um, disdain for absentee ballots, for mail-in voting. He falsely claims that, uh, you know, it's a great way to fake uh, an election and whatnot. So I think a lot of people are concerned about just voting logistics and how to handle potential voter suppression during this, uh, the elections this year. So what is some advice that you have for people if they do encounter issues at the polls? Oh my gosh. No, you're right. (laughs) Um, you know, voting is protected by the constitution. Everyone is the supreme law of the land. You know, if you're 18 or over, I will not get into the 13th amendment today, (laughs) but, um, you know, if you've committed a, a crime, then you can get your vote to be taken from you. That's another discussion for another day. But new day to day, you're eligible to vote. You know, how how you vote absolutely depends on where you live. Um, so though voting is the supreme law of the land, you have the right to that vote. Each state decides kind of how that is handled. So you're, you're one, your most, um, what's it called? Um the information that you absolutely is 100% for your state can be found by your secretary of state. The secretary of state is in, is the one who handles all of the voting, um, voting elections, and each state will have its um, unique way of doing that. And with that, I think folks should understand just how available absentee ballots are, you know, more than um, one, all states. All states have a vote by mail option. Now, how you access that option is differs. So two-thirds of the states require no excuse. Like you can just request, hey, you know, they either have an application online, something that you send in, um, or when you are at the DMV and you're, regis- you're, you're updating your registration, most states will allow you to, hey, do you want to update your uh, voter registration because you moved? You're like, yeah, sure. Click. You know, Um some states make it really easy, like the state of California, um, to to vote by mail. This this year, our governor is just sending all everyone that's a registered voter a vote by mail ballot because of the COVID. Um, and then there are some states. So a third of states require some sort of reason for you to want to request a vote by mail ballot or absentee ballot. And this can be something as, you know, you know, I was 18. Uh, I, I, I voted by absentee ballot because I went to school in a different state. Um, that's, that's a reason. Um, if you are a nurse or doctor and you work 16 hour days, you can absolutely request an absentee ballot. You're like, because of my job, I cannot go to the polls day of, um, 
uh, caregiving. You know, right now it is in a pandemic. Um, and if you are caretaking for a family member, you're like, hey, I can't go to vote. I got to watch, you know, my mother-in-law or whatnot. That's a reason. So a third of states will require some kind of reason for you to request an absentee ballot. But you do have that right to request it. Now, um, and there are some states that even have universal, like, mail-in voting. Like, the state is, I think it's, um, oh, I just, I think it's Washington. Um, they, they, three states, I think, and in, in, in overall just send mail-in ballots because it just makes more sense for that state. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one option, absentee ballot uh, voting. And then there's, there's another option that people don't really know either, and that's early voting. You know, almost all states have some variation of early in-person voting. I want to say all but nine states. So the vast majority. Um, And the voting periods typically range from like four days, like four days in advance of the election to almost 45 days. So more than a month's time to go early and vote. Mm. Um, And that's great. You know, so the average length of early voting in our states is about 19 days. So we're more than two weeks to go in and vote. That makes it a lot safer for folks um, if they don't want to go the day of the election, because as folks saw the huge lines and the concerns regarding health, uh, as we saw in Michigan, um, you know, these two other options are crucial for this election. Um, and so a lot of uh, candidates, a lot of elected officials are saying, request your mo- your mail-in ballot. Um, some are, w- are wanting to pass legislation to make that a requirement that states do, in fact, one, send out those ballots, but two, also are... are um, funded by the federal government to do that because that is that is a cost to the state and if the state wasn't prepared you know they were prepared for maybe like 20 percent of their voters that usually request vote by mail ballots um maybe they only accommodated like 25 30 percent uh of their voters so they they have a shortfall of 70 percent of their of being able to provide these vote by mail ballots they they need to rely on the federal government to ensure that you know democracy is had so um there is uh, numbers, you know, that folks can call if they feel uh, that they are being intimidated or, you know, being asked for their ID, even though they don't even live in a voter ID state. So, again, like I mentioned, states vary um, in the state of Arizona. So just not that far from California. You are required to have an ID when you go and present yourself to vote. Um, and this could be problematic for first time voters. Like if I'm 18, I don't have an ID. <laughs> like I miss, I might, I might still be in high school. You know, I have my school ID. Do you want that? You're like, no, that doesn't count. Right. So difference that, that is the barrier. Right. Um, and so we want to eliminate those barriers ultimately with legislation, but because of what we have by state, we got to just do our best. And that's why there's tons of organizations for each state that, work with first time voters that are nonpartisan that want to give just straight up data like like, like me and information um, to ensure safe voting. Um, so, you know, regarding the legislative side, you know, one, yeah, if you want to ensure that voter suppression doesn't happen, yeah, contact your elected officials, tell them, hey, I'm supportive of, you know, making sure folks are able to vote safely. Democracy is important to me. I think everyone should get their vote by mail ballot. Please, you know, please show your support for legislation. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That will do just that. Um, and I can, I'm can. i trying to think of the specific bills, um, but I think it's called Vote Safe, and I'm just not sure. I think it's... I want to say it's Warren and the, on the Senate side who's who's uh, uplifting that legislation. Um, but if that's not the case, you know, given the stark differences in our House and our Senate um, on, on, on partisan lines, uh, it's important right now because we have the time to understand what it looks like in our in our local and state um, voting practices. So th- that would be my one. I, and I can provide you some links, Janice, after this too. Yeah, for, that would definitely be great. We'll put those notes in, uh, those links in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, huge ones are vote.org and Voto Latino. They're like my favorite. So. Awesome. Okay. One more question I actually have for you before we get into wrapping things up, because this is also a census year, right? And so yeah. the census deadline for um, responding has actually been extended out to mid-August due to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can you just talk a little bit about why people should be filling out this census? Yes, I just volunteered yesterday to make calls awesome. <laughs> for folks about their census. Um, okay, so the census is where we get all of our data regarding our country, who lives here, how old they are, what kind of services they're going to need, and how we fund those services. So the census is basically a data point that so many publications, so many policy centers um, do their research and analysis on because they need a real picture of what a community looks like today than it did in the year 2010. So the census is in the constitution as well, just as voting. Um, And so it's required that every 10 years, the population of the country is counted. Uh, And it doesn't matter if you're a citizen or a non-citizen. If you are living here, you need to be counted. So that's why the question regarding citizenship was such a huge debate because that is not (laughs) called for in the constitution. Mm. So it was just, again, partisan lines, intimidation so that folks who were not citizens would think twice about filling out their census. So that was a battle. Um, And we we just don't want to undercount. And the reason why we want to have an accurate count is because if we... Um, some the, the populations that are actually most undercounted are children, uh, children under five, because people don't count like their little one-year-old baby or their newborn or, you know, a four-year-old in their household because they don't think they're like an adult. But they're, they're, they need to, in fact, know that there's a four-year-old child because they need to know how to fund that school that that four-year-old kid would need uh, in the next 10 years. So... And I, I always like using kids as a, an example to to show how the census is so important because the kids grow up, you know, kids from one years old to five, so in the next four years, you know, will need to go to pre-K. Um, and if we aren't, if we demonstrated, oh, we only have a population of 100,000 kids under the age of five, we won't need, you know, the additional preschools we were planning for. 
or it can, it's, uh, and this could change, you know, you're using the census data for, you know, at the federal level, at the state level, your local level uh, to inform, hey, the school district, you have a, a shortfall of schools. We need to build or we need to be creative of uh, our, our spaces because you have a, you have a huge amount of kids that are coming your way, you know, um, and then specifically around states. States are showing some shortfalls um, in population and other states are showing huge growth. And those are like in the rural states. Um, I remember that conversation was like, what? There's Puerto Ricans in Georgia? Like that was a huge conversation and because those um, areas were growing um, and needed and needed workforce. And so that's where all of a sudden you start to see this migration of new immigrants, as well as just folks that wanted to, you know, it's super saturated in LA. I can't get a retail job anymore. Uh, I need to go and look elsewhere. And so that's when you started getting all these enclaves that showed up in different, you know, untapped uh, states. I don't know if you can hear my dogs, but they're over here panting. They just had a lot. (laughs) Um, So in, in general, these numbers are important because this census number is important. Because how we resource, how we fund these places with our tax dollars will follow the data. And if we don't have an accurate picture, we could potentially be underfunding um, necessary uh, services as well as congressional seats. Uh, Congressional seats um, representation uh, is dependent on population. So that's why California and Texas have such huge numbers of representatives in federal, uh, in Congress because of our population numbers. Mm. It affects everything. Yeah. Yeah. California specifically, if we don't have a good count, we could potentially lose a seat and because California is so blue, that could be potentially a blue, uh, a democratic seat in the Congress, which is if affects voting numbers. Um, so yes, it affects again, uh, everything. <laughs> yeah. It's super important. It takes two seconds. You can do it online. So there's no excuse. Yes. My vote 2020 dot. Oh, let me see. Let me share. Dot org, I think. So. <laughs> or dot gov. <laughs> dot gov. Dot gov. Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. Perfect. All right. Well, Amanda, this has been a great conversation and you are so full of resources and knowledge. So if people want to follow you, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Binchy Millennial as well as on YouTube, Binchy Millennial. And if you want to contact me, my email is also Binchy Millennial at gmail.com. Oh, man, um, this is awesome. I really <laughs> appreciate you, so you. Yeah, this was a great conversation. I think you have informed us in ways that we can continue to use our money, not just to elevate ourselves personally, but to potentially change what the world looks like around us. So I think it's an important message. And I really appreciate you for bringing that to the audience today. Awesome. Yes. Thank you, Janice. This is amazing. And to all the Yo Quiero Dinero podcasters, you know, fight the good fight. And I know y'all are doing what you can with your pockets, uh, your pocketbooks. And that is just as important as well. So thank you. I hope you guys are feeling super pumped after listening to this episode and you're ready to get involved. Now, as a reminder, if you want to get registered to vote, go to vote.gov and fill it out today. And don't forget to fill out your census. As always, if you're loving this podcast and you're loving this episode, please make sure to share, subscribe, rate, and review. That way, amazing listeners like you can find this too. And make sure to head over to the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast website. 
There's a blog on there with all types of articles about personal finance. And we also have the show notes for each of our episodes. So if you want the show notes for this episode, head over to yoquerodineropodcast.com slash episode 33, and you can get all of the links that Amanda and I talked about during our discussion. Until next time, guys, stay active, stay politically involved, stay motivated, stay registered to vote, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.